This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Genesis chapter 2 recounts the creation of Adam. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then we see Adam referenced again in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example, says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And there are other great references as well, such as in Romans chapter 5. The Bible clearly speaks about Adam and Eve as real people through whom sin entered the world and from whom we are all ultimately descended. But there are attacks today, both within the church and outside of the church, on whether or not Adam and Eve were real people and if there really was a fall. How do we defend biblical truth against these accusations and arguments? We are going to tackle that today with Dr. Terry Mortensen, speaker, writer, and researcher for Answers in Genesis and editor of the book. We're going to be discussing a very important one, Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. And so great to have you here, Dr. Mortensen. Welcome. Well, thank you. Good to be with you, Janet. Good to have you here. What is it about people attacking the historicity of Adam? Can you give us a little lay of the land here on why this is happening and where it's happening exactly? Well, um, of course, it it really uh, comes out of the writings of Charles Darwin. In 1859, he wrote his Origin of the Species and uh, just hinted at human evolution. But then in 1871, he wrote Descent of Man, which was a, a, a full-blown treatise on human evolution from ape-like creatures. But that all was built on the foundation of the idea of millions of years. And that idea was developed in the late 18th and early 19th century. And the the church gave gave away the biblical chronology and the biblical flood before Darwin ever came on the scene. And then just over the decades, uh, first they accept uh, animal evolution, but not the evolution of man, and then eventually uh, human evolution. And evangelicals are just a few decades behind the liberals. Wow. And that doesn't bode well for us then, because in just a short amount of time, if the trends continue, then we'll be believing total lies about things. That's right. Wow. So what about inside the church? Because you do hear some arguments from you know theologians here and there saying that Adam wasn't a real person. This isn't real history in Genesis. What is the theological argument against Adam having been a real person? Uh, they're not theological and biblical arguments. They they very loosely deal with the biblical text, and they are all of the theologians who are saying this are just operating on the assumption that science has proven that we evolved from ape-like creatures, wow. and so therefore you've got to reinterpret the text and. Uh, I've, I've read a lot of these arguments or, or seen them, uh, and they just very loosely deal with the biblical text. They don't deal with all the relevant data, 
And I like to call it um, exegetical gymnastics, the way they reinterpret the text. And that's an important point when you said they're not making a theological argument. They're taking information that they have and foisting it upon the Bible. But how did they really ruin the Bible? What do they have to ruin in order to make uh, the non-historical Adam fit into their scheme of things? What what kind of violence do they do to the text? Well, um, they they'll, for example... They'll, they'll say, look, the Bible says that God created man, but it doesn't say how. Well, in fact, it does. In Genesis 2-7, it says, God made man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being or right. a living creature. He did, God did, the text is just absolutely crystal clear. He did not make a living creature, breathe into the living creature the breath of God, and it became man. It's exactly the opposite of what the text says. And then with Eve, of course, she was made from a living creature, which was Adam, but she was made from his rib, and there's no way you can harmonize that text with the evolutionary story. So you have to just ignore the verses and just say, well, you know, it says in Genesis 1 that God created Adam and Eve, but it doesn't say how. Hmm. Well, it does in chapter 2. Yeah. So they're they're seeing it, but not seeing it, or at least ignoring it in, in favor of other outside information. So how do we approach this? When we when we are up against somebody who says Adam and Eve weren't real people, where's, the, where's a good place to begin to come against that with Scripture and also with science? Well, I would I would start with uh, one of the passages that you re- referenced in your opening, and that is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul makes it crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that death came through Adam and life comes through Christ. And Paul makes the same point in Romans 5. Right. Uh, Paul refers to the fact that Eve was deceived in uh, 1 Timothy 2 and in 2 Corinthians 11.3. So Paul takes Genesis as literal history. And Jesus, in Mark 10, he was asked a question about divorce by the Pharisees. And they said, Moses permitted us to divorce our wife. What do you, what do you say? And Jesus took them right back to Genesis 1 and 2, quoted from both chapters, and uh, said, Adam and Eve were back there at the beginning of creation. That is the basis for marriage of one man to one woman for life. And so Jesus took Genesis as literal history. So I I could start with those. But then I would go right back to Genesis 2-7, which I just referred to, and uh, about the creation of Adam from dust, and and, uh, and Genesis 2-22, 21 and 22, that talks about God creating Eve from a rib. You just... There's just no, you can't mythologize that or symbolize that language and be faithful to what the text actually says. Yeah, such a great point. And when you talk about Romans 5, here's one line that really jumps out at me from this passage. This is from verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Now, how can Paul be referencing a time period from Adam until Moses when very few people would dispute the actual historical existence of Moses? But are they really opining that Paul was taking a fake guy and and talking about an era of time beginning with someone who didn't exist up until somebody who definitively did exist like Moses? Well, they they won't come out and say that because obviously their evangelical listeners wouldn't wouldn't like that, but that is the implication of what they're saying. And, uh, you know, another another uh, very important text is Luke 3, where Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus through Mary all the way back to Adam. 
if Adam wasn't a real man, then Jesus was descended from a metaphor. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. So it's critical. It is critical. That's right. And so there's a link there, not just between the existence of Adam and the existence of Christ in historical terms, but also our salvation, right? Because when we're looking at Romans 5, just as in one man we fell in the second Adam, we are saved. If Adam is gone, then doesn't that have some effect on whether or not we can trust in Christ? That, that's exactly right. I mean, you end up having a savior who died for a mythological problem, mm. and then he's a mythological savior. It's interesting, a few years ago, the, uh, the American Atheists posted an article on their website uh, at Christmas time, and uh, they said this, no Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. It also means that the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It is completely unreliable because it all begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fall of man means no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. Goodness. But I mean, that makes sense if you don't have a fall. If evolution is true, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Is this really, in the final analysis, a creative way of denying sin? It is. You, if you if you deny a, a literal historical Adam, you you end up denying indirectly or directly a literal fall, and that just destroys the foundation of the gospel. Are there those who would say outwardly in the church, even some of the seminarians or theologians who who question the historicity of Adam, would they go so far as to say, "I'm not sure there was a fall"? Uh, yeah, they might. They but but if they're if they're really trying to come across to the evangelical world that they're still evangelical, they won't come out and say that explicitly, most likely. Okay. Because their evangelical listeners would, would for the most part, would know enough to say, no, that's not right. Right, a bridge too far. Well, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Terry Mortensen, Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, spending a few minutes with Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, people have a lot of questions today about their healthcare coverage. How is it that Liberty HealthShare works? Well, we work on an individual basis of mutual aid and sharing. So it's not a pooling of funds. It's not a big, complex, bureaucratic mess. It really is. Whenever you have a health care bill, our members go in and share in your medical expenses. And we have seen the decrease of costs, the decrease of complexity, and the increase of accessibility and freedom. So we change the whole script on its head when it comes to health care. So we're not beholden to large third-party payment systems that dictate to you to your health care. We set you free in your health care where you're guiding it based on your principles and beliefs. Why do so many members choose and recommend Liberty HealthShare? Well, there's a lot of reasons, frankly, but a lot of the reasons that people start with is cost. Health care has become very expensive. Trying to pay that every single month or actually going to the doctor's office and having to take care of massive medical bills, that's a big drawback from third-party payment systems. And with Liberty HealthShare, 
We've done everything we can to try to bring that cost down as much as possible. But once people are a part of the community and see that it is an affordable option for them, they start to see that they're helping their neighbor each and every month. Go to bed every night knowing that you contributed to somebody else who has a need. And that's what being a part of a community is really all about. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest, Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis. We're discussing the book he's edited, Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. Why does this matter so much, would you say, Dr. Mortensen, this question of the historicity of Adam? Because I'm sure there are people who would say, I don't really care if Adam was true or false or real or not real. We know the world is sinful. I know Christ died for my sins. What does it matter if Adam was a real person? What would you say to that? But Adam was a real person. He was the uh, father of the whole human race, it, it matters uh, in terms of uh, the foundation of marriage. God created marriage. It's not a, a social construct created by humans. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, the first two humans. He made a, a male and a female. Gender is not a human construct. Uh, you, you have the whole foundation of the gospel is destroyed if Adam wasn't a real person. If, if he was just uh, descended from uh, a lower animal, then he's just an animal, and there's no purpose or meaning to life. And we are witnessing, we are witnessing in America the, the, uh, the moral chaos and insanity of, of our culture because we have rejected the authority of the Word of God in the church and in the culture, and we're redefining marriage, redefining morality. We've killed 58 million babies because what's growing in the womb is not really a human being. Uh, It's all related to Adam and the authority of Scripture. Yeah, well said, right, because this huge battle we're all fighting against, not only the redefinition of marriage, but also uh, the they don't like the binary. They don't like male and female. So if you get rid of Adam and Eve, it gives you one more uh, excuse, I guess, to go forward and say, why should it just be two? Yeah, exactly. And they'll say, hey, uh, in the animal world, you see, they don't call it this, but the the actions of animals are the equivalent of uh, polygamy, rape, yep. um, abandonment of wife and kids. You, you see all of that in animal behavior. Yep. And some evolutionists uh, have tried to argue that there's evidence of homosexual behavior in the animal world. And so if we're just if we're just animals, then what's the difference? Right. We can do all those things. Of course, of course. And and fewer and fewer people are standing up and saying common sense things like, but we're not animals. We're not yeah. animals, you know. Yeah. And now, which brings us to a, another important point, and that is the belief that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. This is a part and parcel of Darwinian evolution. How do we answer that question, and how does the historicity of Adam address that issue? Well, um, obviously, that's a scientific claim, and so we need to respond uh, with scientific arguments. And so in Searching for Adam, we have two chapters on the uh, fossil evidence, uh, and we have a chapter on the genetics uh, written by two uh, scientists who are 
PhDs uh, trained in genetics. And we show that the fossil evidence really does not confirm the evolutionary story. What they're using is a lot of imagination and artwork to convince people. And the genetics actually confirms not only that all people descended from uh, two people, a male and a female, but that actually genetics, the mutation rates that are observed, uh, reveal that Adam and Eve lived about 6,000 years ago, just mm. as the Bible says. So those two chapters, are, are, or those three chapters, are, are very powerful. We also have a, a two chapters on the anatomy of man. And um, man is, is significantly different from the apes in lots of ways. The amount of hair, the sensitivity of uh, nerve endings on the fingers, the the stature, the the spine, the the ability to speak language. Man is not just a little bit higher than an ape. Man is categorically different. Absolutely. And what about the question of going from a less complex creature like an ape, and and the the idea that we're supposed to believe a less complex creature can eventually evolve into a more complex creature? Yeah, I mean. What we know about natural selection and mutations, it does not, those processes do not create new genetic information to change one kind of creature into another kind of creature. Um, and so we're, we're being, the whole world is being deceived by a massive uh, myth uh, masquerading as scientific fact. And so over the last 50, 60 years, God has been raising up uh, people with high with, you know, PhDs in science who are refuting these arguments and exposing the deception of these arguments. And uh, people just need to become informed. That's why we produce this multifaceted book dealing with both the biblical, historical, and scientific side of the issue. Which is so important. What about the issue of when death came? And this is something that is very significant when we're making the biblical case. And that is that because Adam and Eve fell into sin, then um, they were cursed, they were thrown out of the garden, but then they were um, now cursed to death. And, you know, we because we're all sinners, we all die. But evolution over the millions of years idea says that death preceded even those who uh, would hold, if I'm saying this right, to theistic evolution, um, would say that that over millions of years, things died before Adam and Eve. That that just sets everything on its head on its head. How in the world can you have death before the fall? Well, that's a massive problem, and I've read lots of literature by uh, old Earth creationists and theistic evolutionists, uh, old Earth creationists being those who don't accept Darwinian evolution, but do accept the millions of years and the Big Bang and the geological ages. Uh, yeah, it, it's a massive problem, and I've read a lot of literature by those people, and I've interacted with them, and most of them never deal with the relevant biblical texts that uh, refute that idea, namely uh, the last three verses of Genesis 1 that say the originally man and the animals and birds were vegetarian in a very good creation. And then Genesis 3, where God cursed the serpent who deceived Eve and the animals. He uh, judged Eve with increased pain in childbirth, a physical judgment. Adam and Eve began to die physically. Uh, he cursed the ground. Thorns and thistles began to grow. Mm. And then you get to Romans chapter 8, 
Romans 5 does not deal with animal death, but Romans 8 does because it says the whole creation, the the whole non-human creation is groaning in bondage to corruption, waiting to be set free when Christ comes again and gives believers their resurrection body. So it really, the, the millions of years idea really destroys what the Bible says about the original very good creation, what it says about the fall and the present uh, groaning curse creation, and what it says about the future redemptive work of Christ right. when he comes and, as Revelation 22 says, he removes the curse. Right. Yeah, all so good and so important. And, you know, when we look at how this finds its way into the church and all of those who would argue for theistic evolution, you have some combo you can believe as a Christian. This gets back to the central question of the authority of Scripture and how in too many parts of the church we have wandered away from the authority of Scripture and how great the need is for us to get back to it. What sorts of questions do you think are most important for us to address relating to Adam and the fall when we encounter people who say, oh, yeah, I have no problem reconciling the Bible with evolution? Well, again, I would go back to what Paul and Jesus said about um, Adam and Eve and that they built their their teaching about marriage, about... um, the gospel on the foundational truth of of Genesis, and they took it as literal history. You can't find any biblical writer that treats Genesis uh, as figurative or a parable or a prophetic vision or some mm-hmm. symbolic poetry. They all relate to those chapters as if it's straightforward uh, literal history. So if I don't believe what they believe, then I'm not really being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Right. That's right. And so it all begins with Genesis and it all begins with understanding, as you said, that this isn't just poetry at the beginning of the word of God. This is historical narrative. And how sad, you know, it makes me really sad when I hear about how the church always accepted the historicity of Genesis up until a couple hundred years ago. And one wonders, will the church be able to go back and and hold to the truth once more universally and reject finally Darwin's theory? Is there, I mean, what do you see on the landscape as you look forward on the horizon? Well, from a human perspective, I'm I'm rather pessimistic because uh, I'm involved in the Evangelical Theological Society. I go every year to the annual meeting, and from what I can see, uh, we're seeing growing influence in the seminaries of evolution, and uh, it's been 200 years of, of uh, compromise with the millions of years, but now we're seeing more influence in evolution. Just this year at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, there were four books by four different publishers all promoting evolution oh. and millions of years. Oh, man. And what a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian theologians don't see who are concerned about the denial of Adam is that historically we got to this mess uh, because the church rejected the biblical chronology and the and the flood of Noah. Right. And um, I I really unpack that historical descent in the last chapter of Searching for Adam. So we can't just fight for Adam and then say, oh yeah, but the age of the earth doesn't matter. Because as we've already referenced, uh, the the millions of years is millions of years of death and bloodshed and violence and extinction and natural disasters and asteroids slamming into the earth and hurricanes and tornadoes. 
that can't be part of the very good creation, or we've just totally redefined words. We certainly have. Yeah, going back to Romans 5, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The Word of God is authoritative, and I'm so glad to recommend to you Searching for Adam, Dr. Terry Mortensen with us from Answers in Genesis. Thank you so much, Dr. Mortensen. Good to be with you, Janet. Good to talk to you. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Mark chapter 10 gives us an interesting picture of the ambition of James and John. Remember this, they asked Jesus to grant that in his glory, they would be able to sit at his right and his left. But Jesus told them they didn't know what they were asking. And he went on to say, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus' answer here flies in the face of a lot of what we see in today's culture that many of us commend, like the desire to be strong and powerful, to be ambitious or recognized. But Jesus showed that in his humility and in his service and in his sacrifice, there's a better way. And joining me now is Todd Outkalt, who has been a pastor for 35 years. He's written more than 30 books and we'll be talking about his latest, which addresses the temptations we all feel in our pursuit of goodness. It's called The Seven Deadly Virtues. And Todd, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, it's rather unusual, as you know, to hear somebody speaking about virtues as being deadly. So tell us a little bit about what you're talking about here. Sure. Well, you know, we've all heard about the seven deadly sins. Right. And so this book is really, uh, you might say the flip side of that is how, how do we sometimes in the Christian life, um, in our pursuit of goodness or love or family or faith, and I love your quote there earlier about um, sometimes our pursuit of success, yeah. how do we define that? What is, what's the, the downside of those pursuits? So that's what this book is really about. Yes. Now, how is it that virtues are often what land us in trouble? That's one of the things that you say in the book. Why do you say virtues can land us in trouble? You know, it's really interesting. As I was studying the saints uh, through the years, there are, there are several that have had some interesting quotes about the downside of virtue. For example, St. Chrysostom um, had a quote, where virtue is, there are many snares. Hmm. And likewise, um, John Scotus once said that no vice is found but within the shadow of some virtue. Hmm. So centuries ago, um, Christians were recognizing that there is a downside to our pursuit of virtues, because sometimes we can uh, step aside from the grace of God in our pursuit of success or power and other other things that may be alluring to us. Right. 
That's true. Well, what about in the realm of faith? You've got a chapter here on keeping your faith without yes. destroying the faith of others. That's something we would all like to not do is destroy the faith of others. But how does that happen? Because faith, obviously, is a wonderful thing to have faith in the gospel and faith in Christ. What about the effect that that can have, though, uh, the dark side of that virtue? Well, it is a fascinating thing because in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus warns us against this. He says, beware of practicing your piety before others. Yes. And there's different ways that we can translate that, of course, but you think about righteousness or beware of practicing your faith to be seen by others. So I really tried to explore what the dark side of faith might be in terms of how sometimes in lifting up our own faith or maybe our own faith traditions, we can actually destroy the faith of others. So I try to I try to play with that a little bit, and to uh, to try to help people to understand how sometimes our faith um, can be a baggage as well, particularly as we try to pursue a set of beliefs rather than pursuing the love of God or the grace of God. Well, and and we think of James saying that faith without works is dead. So you'll see an example, for example, somebody will say, well, I believe this doctrinal statement and I'm checked off on everything that's orthodox and I make sure that all my doctrines in line with the historic Christian faith, but then turn around and act like a Pharisee in other ways. That can be really, really undermining to, for example, a young Christian who would see that and say, well, wait a minute, just because you have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, but if you act mean to somebody or you act self-righteous that isn't that sort of undoing what you profess absolutely you're spot on that's exactly what uh, i'm trying to uh, pursue here in that in that chapter so uh really we're called to embody the love of jesus and i think that's so true where you know what we're what we're really trying to be about as christian people is to embody um, the love of Christ and how we live that out, not just that we profess it, but we have to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Yes, and it's so different, isn't it, to see a Christian who is concerned about, I'm going to be good in this way, I'm going to be virtuous in this way, I'm going to obey the Lord here, but leaves behind love. I, I have seen this in, in different people's lives. I'm sure I, I've experienced it in my life where it is almost a, a better thing to be able to concentrate on loving the Lord, the great commandment, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. It seems that as you're pursuing virtue, though, sometimes the self-centeredness of it gets in the way. Do you find that to be the case? It absolutely is the case. And I, this was a very challenging book for me to write in that respect because so often I had to find myself looking in the mirror. Yes, <laughs> and right. thinking about, wow, um, you know, I found myself in these places at times where I've I haven't really loved people the way that I should have or could have loved. Um, rather than thinking, you know, think sometimes thinking about my faith as being a set of of, of rules or uh, simply beliefs or doctrines that I'm following, rather than really trying to live out, as you said, the Lord's will yeah. uh, for others and for my life. What would you say is the difference between God's way of love and loving our way? You know, one of the things that... Um, I go back to, this is in my own United Methodist tradition with John Wesley, is Wesley had these three simple rules where he said, first, do no harm, then secondly, to do good, and thirdly, to stay in love with God. If we think about the simplicity of that, that, you know, we're called, first of all, to do no harm, 
but then that we, we really want to stay in love with God. I mean, that's, that's where our faith really should be abiding, and that's really the foundation of our faith, is, yeah. is that we're really wanting to love the Lord and, and to follow His path. Right. Yes, exactly. That's right. Well, and you think about John 15, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not rooted and grounded in the Lord, then what sort of fruit are we going to produce anyway? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah, in, very nice. Yeah. It, it, now, it's interesting because another aspect that you touch upon in the book is family. Now, we love family. We love our families. We love our husbands, wives, our kids, our parents, all the rest. What about the difference, though, between our families being paramount versus God's family? This, I think this is a very fascinating point that you bring up. It is, and particularly as we think about um, something that Jesus said. Uh, when people came to Jesus, uh, there's several of those interludes in the Gospels where people say, hey, your family's outside you, the door here, your, your mother and your brothers. And Jesus says, well, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. And I think we all have this understanding that the church is the family of God, and sometimes, you know, the bonds of of the waters of baptism are much deeper than the bonds of, of blood. Yep. And we've, we've all had those experiences where we can say, you know, um, uh, other people are part of my family, um, the other believers, and sometimes that goes back to some of the traditions in the church about people calling each other brother and sister. Yes. In the, in the household of faith. Sure. Well, and I often hear from people who are single who say, if we focus too much on family, 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 which is all wonderful, where do I fit in as somebody who's not yet married? So that that can be a problem as well. It, it sure can. I've had a lot of experiences, I know that you have too, where we've, we've all experienced maybe um, in our pursuit of trying to have strong families, like you just say, we, we sometimes have a tendency to ostracize those who, who maybe don't have a solid family life, or maybe they, they, do have, they haven't had the background um, that we our, ourselves have experienced. You know, I, I came from a very uh, solid, very loving family, but not everyone has come out of a family experience like that. Right. So the church can become that. Absolutely. And there's room for everybody in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And I love that passage. You mentioned Mark three, where uh, Jesus mother and brothers arrived and they said, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, but who, who is that for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And that's so important for us to remember. You're absolutely right about that. We're going to take a very quick break and come back with Todd Outcalt. His book is called the seven deadly virtues, temptations in our pursuit of goodness. And we'll be back right after this. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Hi, this is Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, and I want to send a big thank you for standing for life to you. Because of listeners like you in 2020, Preborn sponsored over 45,000 free ultrasound sessions to women in need, saved over 31,000 babies, and prayed with over 6,500 women to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. The battle rages on in 2021 at an even greater level. And our goal is to give Planned Parenthood the biggest competition ever. 
Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Todd Outkalt. His book is called The Seven Deadly Virtues, Temptations in Our Pursuit of Goodness. And some very fascinating points he's been making here. One of the virtues that you talk about in the book, Todd, is power. Now, I thought that was kind of interesting because power we don't necessarily think of as a virtue necessarily. Why did you approach that particular subject as one of the deadly virtues? Well, as a pastor, I sometimes I, I feel like um, I'm given maybe too much power or too much authority, and, and there has to be kind of a an understanding and an awareness of the power that sometimes we can wield over other people, hmm. uh, and also thinking about some of the ways that, are, whether it's economics or politics or something else, that can come into into play in our faith that can take the power away from God and. and Put it in the hands of, of people. I think that's something that 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 chapter really tries to grapple with. Yeah. It's just our our understandings of power. Yeah, explain that a little bit more because I'm interested in that. There are certain sectors of the church at times that like to talk about our authority or the church's authority, and certainly there's an authority structure and so forth. But it can be abused at times. How does that factor into what you just said about God having all power and how we should approach the subject of power and authority? Well, I might go back uh, just briefly to the Lord's Prayer. I mean, at the end of the prayer, we pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So we're not looking to our own power and authority, but we're looking to God's power and authority um, as the foundation for our lives. And then I think about also someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, essentially spent the last portion of his life in prison, mm-hmm. um, having other people having power over him, but yet recognizing that really it was God who had the ultimate power and that the ultimately uh, others could not harm him because he was within the hands of God. Right. So I think we can all grapple with some of those, those uh, concepts of power today, whether they be 
economic or political, or even the power that sometimes we see in the church. And maybe manipulation might be another word that mm-hmm. we can we could substitute for power. Yeah. So I think sometimes we can have manipulation as well. Um, in the body of Christ. And isn't it interesting, it goes back to the uh, chapter 10 of Mark that I was quoting at the outset of our interview, where Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here was Jesus, who deserves all glory, honor, and power as God himself in human flesh, and yet he demonstrated servant leadership. What sort of model would you say Jesus should be for us, who truly is powerful, way more powerful than we'll ever be, and how he treated his power in his own life. Oh, that's a great quote. I, I love what you just quoted there because that is so true. Jesus pointed out that our real, our real power, our real authority is when we become servant leaders. Um, because he said those who, who serve best, who serve most, are those who are, will be lifted up. The, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Yeah. So as we think about as we think about power and what it means in, within the church, you know, we are looking to be uh, a, to live a life of servanthood rather than a life of power that is clearly consumed or displayed just within how we how the world might understand power. Right. That service. Right. And that's such an important reminder. And this kind of goes hand in hand with another aspect of these seven deadly virtues, one of which is success. Now, success is not again, people will say, well, I do want to be successful in what I'm doing, my job or at school or what have you. How can that turn wrong? How can people get caught up in success and then it becomes something that is really bad? Well, I, I, I think I can see this in my own life so often. Uh, you know, we do have a tendency to pursue, uh, I think about all my life, you know, I, I pursued, first of all, economic, or not economic, but um, academic successes early in my life. And then thinking about ways that we like to be successful or have other people see us as being successful, whether that's, um, you know, having success as a, as a pastor, uh, leading a growing church, you know, getting a, a larger budget, all these kinds of things, yeah. they can be very alluring. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you know, we're not called to be successful. Mother Teresa has a great, a great quote there that we're called to be faithful, mm-hmm. not to be successful. So we do have to grapple with that, I think. Oh, yeah. And and even within the church, I'm sure you feel this as a pastor. Every pastor I talk to does feel this, but there is a lot of pressure. Uh, how big is your church or how many new people came in this year or how big was your yeah. event? That sort of thing. Why do you think we focus on those things as much as we do? Because the Bible isn't obsessed with those things. No, not at all. But it, we live in a society where that's that's actually the focus. I mean, we think about um, business and the fact that there are many people in our congregations that are that are a part of the business world where that is the key is uh, you have to have a, a growing business. You have to have greater profitability year by year. And so we can get caught up in some of those numbers. And, you know, being a Methodist, uh, so often our history has been all about numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, take, keeping copious records of, of our growth and so forth. So it's easy to get caught up in it. But yet, that's not what we're called to be or to do. No. And and you put as an antidote there the allure of grace versus the lure of success. How does the allure of grace solve the problem of getting caught up in the lure of success? Well, we're not always going to be successful. Um, sometimes we're going to fail, but yet 
our lives are not indicative of our failures, but our lives are are centered and grounded in the grace of God. Yeah. I mean, we're we're called to to trust in God's grace, even when we're not successful. We're looking to uh, what seemingly on the outside would be Christ's failures, but yet they were really successes because He He came to serve all. Amen. That's very, very true. Yep. And you can't always judge by appearances because you don't know exactly what's coming down the pike. What about the goodness? You say there is goodness that can lead us to God and goodness that can lead us to believe we are self-sufficient and privileged. So you're talking Mm -hmm. about when good isn't good enough, God is still good. Talk about that and where your thinking was going in that direction on goodness leading us to God versus goodness that makes us feel good about ourselves, which isn't good. Well, you know, so often when I'm talking to people about the Christian life, and sometimes people think that the goal of the Christian life is to become a good person. Hmm. And yet Jesus said that no one is good but God alone. And so being good isn't our ultimate goal. That's not what we're striving for. We're, We're really striving to avail more and more of our lives to the grace of God, to the goodness of God, because God alone is good. Right. And so that is, that is also something that I think can be very alluring to us and, and can lead us down a, a, a dark path is because when we start to think about our own goodness and we just overlook the goodness of God, we can get to some very dark and deep places. Yes, and I think of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and how they got caught up in how good they were at keeping the law and how Jesus was always cutting Mm -hmm. them down to size. You haven't kept the law. You think you've kept the law. The difference between the publican and the Pharisee springs to mind. You know, the one who's beating his breast and saying, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, versus the one who said, oh, thank you, God, that you didn't make me like that guy over there. Um, That seems to be a trap we can all easily fall into is thinking we're doing pretty well and God is pretty pleased with us. It certainly is. And then we can get to that point where we, we don't think that we need the grace of God. Mm-hmm. You know, that we alone are sufficient. Our goodness is good enough. But the gospel tells us our goodness isn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's God's goodness yeah. that we're trusting in. It is. How do you keep your head on straight about that in the day to day, though? Understanding I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Only Christ could save me. I'm not good in and of myself. That's why I need a savior. But I am trying to obey the Lord. How do I keep myself in check and really rest in the grace of God and not get my head puffed up when I think I'm doing pretty well before God? How do you deal with that? You know, I think for the individual, it's just having a recognition and a realization day by day that we're not perfect. I mean, there are are all mistakes that we make. There's times that we fall, uh, but we just have to trust in God's grace to lift us up again and set us on the on the right path. Um, we we can all find ourselves there. It's it's easy to find ourselves in that place though, where we just don't we just don't recognize the grace of God at work in our lives. I agree. That is a big problem. And this is a good reminder for us to keep our eyes on the grace of God, what he did for us, not how well we're doing in our own lives. Well, it's called the seven deadly virtues, temptations in our pursuit of goodness. And Pastor Todd Outcalt was with us. And it was so nice to have you here, Todd. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was enjoyed a, it. Thank you. Me too. It was a pleasure to have you. God bless you. And thank you for joining us on Janet Buffer today. We'll see you next time. God bless you.